Hey folks, if you're dealing with sleep issues or stress, anxiety, dealing with pain management even, cutting down on inflammation, pretty much all the things I'm dealing with, I really encourage you to check out cocanacare.com. They make ultra-concentrated, terpene-rich CBD oil derived from all-natural, high-quality industrial hemp. It's legal in all 50 states. It's USDA certified 100% organic. It doesn't contain any heavy metals, no pesticides, nothing like that, and it doesn't contain THC. So if you've heard a lot about CBD but not know you know, a brand to trust to try it, I really encourage you to check them out. They're being gracious enough to support us during this time, so I'd love it if you went and supported them. You can find out more at cocanacare.com, and you can also find a link in the show notes. We got Jonathan in it. We'd lost John. They're going, get in. I said, I can't get in because the last thing John's wife said was, don't come back without him. So swam around a little bit, and he was holding on to the EPIRB, Got him in the life raft, and you have to imagine a life raft with four guys in it. Hypothermic, going down, one semi-cast and one in shock. <laughs> I'm just laughing, thinking, oh, poo. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. So this is a throwback to five years ago, and Travis was doing this. He's one of the previous hosts, if you remember. And every Thursday, we do a throwback Thursday episode, unless we have something kind of interesting or or different to share. But I've never heard this one, but I'm excited to hear it. And you heard from the little carrot at the beginning that this guy has just an awesome accent, great storyteller. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to listen. He spent Many years in the British Special Forces, he's a lifelong adventurer, and he's gone from everything to the frozen tundras of Norway to the heat of the African bush, and he's going to just tell us some of his life experiences and what open ocean kayaking is all about. Definitely something I would like to get more into. So I hope you enjoy this throwback, and uh, yeah, we'll be coming at you on Monday. Welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. As a former soldier in the British Special Forces, a military diver and lifelong adventurer, Peter Bray has led a very full life. He now works as a security consultant in outdoor pursuits and structure. In his 56 years, there are a few extreme challenges he has not attempted. Pete's exploits have taken him from the frozen wastelands of Norway to the searing heat of the African bush. He's with me today to share a few of these stories from his life of adventure. Pete, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Travis. Oh, good to have you. So, man, I read a few things that you've done, but you, you're you a skier, an adventure racer, a cyclist, marathoner, microlight pilot, climber, and a motorcyclist. This is this is quite a long list of adventures that you've conquered throughout your life. Yes, I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell us about how you got started in this life of adventure. What kind of kid were you that, that really... It kicked things off this way. You obviously weren't uh, weren't a, a bookworm and, and holed up in your bedroom, I'm assuming. No, it's interesting you say that. Um, I had my brother turn up today with his youngest, who is 10 years old, and he was a typical 10-year-old. And I said, do you realize when I was 11, I was arrested? And <laughs> he's like, what? I said, yeah. Why? And it's... The story is I had a double canvas kayak. Remember how size of a little 11-year-old boy is? I had a broom handle with two table tennis bats, a World War One buoyancy aid. It's the rib type that go across your front and back. And I went off paddling, knew nothing about tides, currents, winds, nothing. It's, you know, 11 years old, I'm excited. I know the world. Off I went paddling. When I stopped for a pasty, because Cornishmen always eat pasties, Coming back, I saw the Ark Royal in at Plymouth Dockyard, which is a Navy military dockyard. And I thought, oh, this would be good. So I paddled down there, and I'm on the water looking up at this big, huge aircraft carrier in in oar. And the next thing I hear is the sound and the blue lights of the river police that I trespassed into a top security area. Oh, no. <laughs> so, uh, 
yes, they put the kayak in the back of the, the launch, uh, took me down inside the launch. They were in stitches at an 11 year old could do this. Took me back and uh, my auntie was in tears. She just saw a police launch and a kayak out the back. Told my dad who, um, let's put it this way, in those days it was called education. Today it's called child abuse. <laughs> I right. sit down for a week. <laughs> and it, you learned your lesson there maybe? <laughs> well, I didn't because it got worse and I do what I do now and that was the start of it all. That's great. So your life on the water started out with uh, a little bit of hot water is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so you were an adventurous kid from the start. Literally, yes. That's great. So kayaking seems to be kind of the your major hitch. That's the thing you, you seem to really love. Um, but like I said, you've delved into a whole bunch of, of other uh, adventure sports what it is about kayaking that that's got your attention? It's a very good question, and I get asked it a lot. And I think it's because I um, the BCU don't like me. That's a British Canoe Union. They they just don't understand me. Um, we live in a different world, and everything has to be done by the book in safety. And I love being on my own. Hence, I did the Atlantic on my own. I've done a lot of things. And it's when you're out there with Mother Nature and you're you're hearing the sounds around you, you're seeing the sights around you, and it's you with her. And she and I, like any couple, we have our arguments. She gives me the worst conditions, and I have to deal with it. But it's being out there and listening and seeing what she can give me. Yeah, and I think she's given you uh, quite a bit of guff over the years, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think if she was a woman, I'd have divorced her. <laughs> With Mother Nature, we don't get that choice. No, we just got to smile and take the next one. Yeah, absolutely. So what was your your first real adventure? I know you've gone across the Atlantic quite a few times. Uh, you've done uh, circumnavigation of Newfoundland, and you've done the, the South Georgia uh, kayak. What was the first one you set out to to conquer? I know you, you've set some world records. and. Yeah, um, being in the military, I was restricted on what I could do. Um, I did a lot of river paddling. Uh, one of the big ones, I did the second ever Arctic canoe race, which is down the border of Sweden and Finland, uh, a seven-day race. This is in a racing K1, and I'm a white water paddler, never been in a K1 flat water racer. So lesson one was learn to sit in it and paddle it. Um, and I enjoyed it so much. It was almost seven days. And I was looking at what could I do when I left the military after all this time. I needed to learn to be a civilian because I got a military head on. And I thought the best way to do it is to do an expedition, do something. And I planned to paddle around mainland UK. Uh, got in touch with the BCU in the days they liked me. And they said, there's a blind guy doing it. Would you like to take him? I said, he's got the support. He's got the sponsorship. He's got everything. I'd be daft not to. Um, so we met, got it, took him on one of the hardest races in the world, devises to Westminster. We did the four-day event, which I had to get special permission for, because I wanted to teach him that you paddle during the day, you stop, you get up in the morning, you put your kit back on, you got to paddle again. There's no ifs and buts which was an education to him. We set off and up around the west coast of Scotland, we nearly got run over by a, a tanker crossing one of the fjords. And oh. I said, it's got to be easier than this in the Atlantic. That was the seed sold for the Atlantic. Uh, when we finished, I looked at the Atlantic. Um, the southern route had been done by Romer and Hans Lindemann, but nobody had attempted the northern route. So I thought, that's for me. Let's do the north. The rest is history. As easy as that, right? Yeah. So how long did that take you, the circumnavigation of uh, of UK. the UK? Uh took a bit longer than I think I owed the record for the slowest because Steve, being partially sighted, suffered a lot with headaches. So we couldn't get the distances. And some days we did. I think our shortest paddle was two miles. Other days, we didn't get on the water. It was all geared around Steve. So it took us right. five months. Okay. All right. 
So tell me about your your trip across the Atlantic uh, in the the kayak. You did this unsupported, is that correct? Totally unsupported, just me, the kayak, and that was it. I had to have radio communication. That was part of the deal, and that was the only means of speaking to anybody was the radio. So you set out to do this, but got turned back and had to try again. I love the way you say turn back. <laughs> <laughs> to put it lately. Well, let's say it was, I think it was my third argument with Mother Nature. I think I upset her somewhere along the line. Set off from Newfoundland, um, 2000. We had the boat 90% finished. Um, but because of the time frame of getting it to Newfoundland, we thought we'd get it finished over there. And this is no uh, detriment to the new fees. I love the new fees. We had somebody put the plumbing in and you put someone in, you get 50, 50 chance, which way you put it in and you put it in the wrong way. So instead of stopping water coming in, but pumping water out, it worked in reverse. And Ugh. so I set off, which was quite interesting at, um, just as it was getting dark and, uh, the university turned up with their guys, you know, escort me out, which was really nice. And they had a, a Japanese, I think it was a Japanese Chinese professor who decided to cut in front of me. Now, this was a 27 foot, 580 kilo kayak. It does not stop once you get it going. And I went over the back of it. <laughs> I couldn't stop. <laughs> oh, no. I've just sunk you. Uh, paddled off, paddled through the night, had a great time, got about 40 odd miles off. And as dawn came, I thought I'd get in a kayak. Sorted, it, secured, put the sea anchor out, did everything, got in. And all through the the build-up to it, when I was in Newfoundland, we were on the computer because they were new. And I said, surely they need a password. And the guys went, this does not need a password. As we were just about to set off, we did one more test. And he said, do it. So I did it as I was on the boat, and it came up straight away. So great. He said, don't need password. I said, great, order. So anyway, got up in the morning, been raining all night, put the computer on, still in the little cabin, which is lying down, and uh, it went, password. <laughs> of course it did. <laughs> What's the password? There is no... So got on the VHF to, to Jim and said, the computer needs a password. He's going, there isn't one. I said, well, it wants it. So we're doing that. In the time, I thought, I'd go see what's outside. I put my hand, we had a little window in the, the door, if you can call it, and I noticed that when I went to sleep, I was in a kayak, and now I'm in a submarine. I was literally just below the water surface. Oh, man, that's scary. It was. It was like, what do you do? And I'm, all I'm in is a nightshirt. Uh, a nightshirt, that's what they call it in America. It's a shirt that's extended, nothing else. Right. Um. And I knew as soon as I opened the door, the place would flood out. So I got myself ready, got the grab bag, got the raft, everything ready. So the minute I opened the door, this would happen. Quickly got on the phone to Jim and said, don't worry about the password. I'm about to sink. (laughs) Password not needed. (laughs) (laughs) I closed the laptop down, opened the hatch and the, the room filled up, got out, got in the life raft, got my grab bag, got everything. Tied off to the kayak because it's huge. It's 27 feet, bright colors because you never leave your boat. And there's a saying here, never stand down to a life raft or stand up to a life raft, which I'd done. Mother Nature thought, you smart little man. I don't like this. You get one. So she lifted, brought a wave, lifted the life raft onto the kayak and ripped a hole in the life raft. Uh, are you kidding me? No, no, she didn't like me. I'd upset her somewhere along the line. I think I fancied another woman or something, but anyway, she was upstairs. So I thought, if I stay here, I'm going to have no life raft. So I cut away, um, and she went, right, just to make sure, she sent another wave that tipped the life raft and me up, so I was back in the drink. Got back in, and all I had was a day-night flare, half a paddle and a pump. Everything else had gone over. Sorted out, left the boat, just drifted, half a paddle trying to paddle, found a fishing buoy. And I thought, ah, fishing boy means fisherman, means rescue, means tie off on it. So that's what I did. Stayed there for 37 hours. Uh, I had the pump around my neck and just pumped for 37 hours. Uh, two icebergs go past me and 
all sorts. Wow. Yeah. And that's some frigid water out there. We're not talking about uh, tropical waters. You're in some cold out- water out by Newfoundland. Yeah, and you have to imagine sitting in a one-man life raft, so my feet are under the water, my knees are out of the water, my middle region with the, the most important pieces under the water. Oof. And cut a long story short, when I got rescued, I couldn't get on the plane until I'd been medically certified because of the injuries that I could fly. And it took me six months to learn to walk again. Uh, yeah, it was an interest. But they asked, how did I survive? And it was, I had a disaster and I planned a redesign of the kayak to go a year later. So after all that, you thought you'd just jump back in the in the boat and, and set off again? Yeah. So <laughs> to the day, a year later, I set off and crossed the Atlantic in 76 days. Wow. And it was a successful trip then? Very successful, but it had its ups and downs. Yeah, literally? Oh, literally. Um, at the halfway point, the hatch, which the company, brilliant company, said this, the kayak would break before the hatch. They said the Titanic wouldn't sink, but hey, you know, we've all got our ideas. The The hinge in the hatch broke. So that meant the door wouldn't close, which meant the water would come in. So I had to repair that hatch. So you have to imagine a guy in a middle of the Atlantic in a little kayak having to saw bits of metal with no hinge, using your knees as a vice, uh-huh. with the phone in your shoulder, talking to a guy. And the first problem we had is I'm old school, so I'm imperial. He's new school. He's metric. So we had to learn the language <laughs> together. You have to start converting a lot of things. <laughs> I found out that he'd got his desk, put the hinge there, had a ruler and was measuring everything off the ruler. So oh, tell funny. me the, the fractions to cut. That is funny. And we, we've got the hinge fixed. And to this day, that hinge is still on the, the kayak. Yeah, you should have built it in the first place. Yes. <laughs> So explain the kayak a little bit. I mean, obviously, we most people know kayaks, a typical thing you throw on top of your car and take it down to the lake or the or the, the white water to, to paddle like that. Um, a seagoing kayak is obviously very different. So could you describe that a little bit? And it also, how is it, I should say, what is the day in the life of being out on the ocean in the kayak? Obviously, you need sleep, you need food and whatnot. How do you handle all of that? Right. If you look at the history of the kayak, which is in my book, this is me plugging my book now, Kayak the Atlantic. And we will definitely get to that. Yep. Um, the the Inuit, which people call the Eskimos, they designed the boat for their purpose. So there is no definite design of a kayak. It was designed to purpose. And if you look through the history, you'll see different shapes. So that was great for me. I designed a kayak for the purpose. So I went to a young lad called Jason Rice, told him my vision, and he drew the kayak that crossed the Atlantic. It's 27 feet in length. It has a little cabin, if you can call it, on the back, which the Newfies called a coffin, because all you can do is lie down in it, nothing else. <laughs> That's a bad term. <laughs> yeah, really was. Um, there's no template. So what is it? You've got to look at it, look at the ifs, look at the what's, look at the where's. So I took a hundred days food and you you have to look at everything. So I looked at the food. People said, oh, you need dehydrated. It's lighter. Yes, it is. But you need water to get it working. What if I haven't got water? Well, you've got solar panels. But what if? So we come up with boiling the bag and I had fog for most of the journey. Fog on solar panels don't work. You get trickle power, not full power. So that was that. The cooker kept getting tipped over by the the sea. So for 74 days, I had cold boil in the bag. Ooh, yummy. Yeah, and it was. it's all about psychology when you're out there, as you just asked. So what I did was have special socks made, tubes, that would take seven days' food. And the seven days' food was my breakfast, lunch, dinner, with a bonus, because you always got to have a bonus to look forward to. And it was fruitcake, uh, high-energy paste, uh, energy biscuits, an extra chocolate bar, 
And because I'm that kind of a guy, nothing. Because if you have nothing, it gives you something to look forward to. I packed the 100 days myself, put them all on the floor, walked away and had somebody else put them into the sock. So I didn't know what was in what sock. Uh. Socks are stored in the front of the kayak. You look at how you're going to get it out. What have you stuck in the cabin? So every seven days, I put a sock in inside the cabin. So when I was sealed in, I could still eat. I still had everything there. Somebody had a sense of humor because they put in one sock seven nothings. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that was it. Um, a day in it. Right. You, you've got to try and keep the dry area dry, the wet area wet. So you, you sit in your cockpit, which is your wet area, and you paddle. When it's time to finish, you check the waves around you because you're only about six inches from where you're sitting above the water. Um, yeah, everything's okay. You strip off naked. You sit there, and as you said, it's a bit chilly up there. Check the waves. Everything's okay. Quickly open the hatch. Jump in. Close the hatch. Get the sleeping bag out of storage. Quickly get in a sleeping bag. Get a bit warm. This is seconds now. Open the hatch. Get the cover for the cockpit. Put it over the cockpit to stop the water getting in it. Get back in and put some clothes on. Get back in the sleeping bag. And then uh, that's it. You spend the night there. Every 15 minutes you're waking up because you get condensation in there. You're mopping out. You power nap when you can. You eat in there. You do everything. Um Man, that is uh it's it, it is a a life that could drive you crazy over 76 days. I mean, you really have to be mentally strong to do this. There's no doubt about that. I think what it was is everybody said it couldn't be done. And when the first disaster happened, they all said we told you so, and that focuses you. And it's their attitude towards you. They said, "No, nah, this is impossible. You can't do it." And I wanted to prove you could do it. And I did prove you could do it. And they did it. Yeah, it's actually a real benefit to have people do that because that yeah. gives you the drive to prove them wrong, of course. Yeah. It's human nature. Yeah. So, um, and then in the morning, you get up, say in the morning when it's time to paddle, you have two offset windows either side, the port and starboard. You look at it, the waves look okay. You strip off naked because the, the Canadians put a big part in their local papers of, was it Peter Mooney's The Atlantic? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, you get naked. Yeah. Conditions. Open the hatch. Take the cover off. Quickly jump in the hat in the cockpit. Close the hatch. Put the wet kit on. Paddle for an hour to warm yourself up. Then sit and have your breakfast, which is cold. And then you go into a regime of paddling. And my regime was paddle for an hour. If I could paddle for the hour, I got a reward of a suite. And that's what I did. Huh. So you end up playing real mental games out there yeah. with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. When I grew up, if I drew on the wall, I knew it because my bottom would be sore. And it's quite funny because I can only lie down in the, the cabin. And I was drawing on the walls right in what was happening during the day because the boat was being knocked about, I couldn't do it in pen and paper. So inside my cabin is all the incidences that happened. So it <laughs> looks quite good inside. That is cool. Well, you mentioned incidences. What is the craziest thing you've experienced out there on the water in the middle of the ocean? The craziest as in funny or the craziest and oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Well, when I was 300 miles off the Irish coast, um, we had good visibility this day, and I thought, there's a boat. I haven't seen a boat. So I paddled to this boat. You've now got to imagine somebody, it's been out at sea for 70-odd days, 69 days. I'm in Alava State, got a beard. My hair is not cold, blah, blah, blah. And you're in the Atlantic. And I paddled up to this fishing boat, which was Spanish, and it was called the Mendoza. And... I don't know if you know the history. There's a lot of um, unpopularity about the Spanish fishing in our water and such and such. So this is a Spanish boat. So I pull up alongside the man there. So I shout, morning, chaps. And they just freeze. They look at me and they freeze. Like, what in the world? 
and they're nudging each other. We've got to stay off this San Miguel, you know, this is not good. And so I was, okay, you don't want to speak to me. I'll go around the other side. So I paddled around the other side of the boat with the other guys in there. I went, hello, chappies. We've got to stop off this marijuana. This is just not, this is bad. It's <laughs> a crazy man out here. <laughs> Are we really seeing him? So I went, okay, guys, fun's over. British protection. Let me see your fishing permits. <laughs> so I paddled off. Did they actually give you their permits? No, no, they they didn't speak a word to me. They just kept nudging each other and pointing as if to say, you got to stay off this wacky stuff. Yeah, that's hilarious. They were probably honestly trying to figure out if they were really seeing you or not. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's fun and games of it. And then when I arrived in uh, Donegal Bay, the the mist cleared and I could see the land and it was a, a fishing boat again. I love fishing boats with two young lads on it. And I paddled up to him and said, uh, hello, chappies. And he went, I can't do an Irish accent. They went, be Jesus, you're the lost man. I went, do you know where you are? Of course we do. I said, well, how am I lost then? So I said, where can I go in? And they said, pointed out a couple of places. I said, I can't get in there because that's going back against the current. I'll go to this place up away. Um, if you can phone this number and tell them you found me, and that's who I'll be. So that's what they did. I paddled into the bay, and uh, two guys were coming out of a cottage, so I blew my whistle, and they come around. I tied up against the, the um, breakwater there, and I said, could you tell me where I am, please? And they said, why? I said, I've just paddled from Newfoundland. And they, they were like, yes, and we're the pulp. <laughs> You're telling porky pies. Right. And as I climbed up the ladder, they went to help. I said, you can't touch me till I make one step because somebody will say I was assisted. So I took one step. And while I was lying on the floor, they said, can we help you now? I said, please. <laughs> I had no legs. My legs had gone. And uh, they took us around to the cabin by feet, of course give us a sandwich, and I met the only guy that's teetotal in Southern Ireland. I couldn't believe it. He said, would you like a drink? And I'm thinking, whiskey, poutine, take a brandy. I'll even have a beer. And he went, tea. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that worked as well. Tea was brilliant. Yes. (laughs) First hot thing in 76 days. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. So you were part of a four-man team as well that, that rode across the Atlantic, and you had a bit of a run-in with a hurricane. Can you tell that story? I think that's a that's an amazing one. Yes, that was Pink Lady, and um, I'm ex-military, as you've already said, and special forces, so there was a lot of hiding on my side because I was not going to wear anything pink. I'm just <laughs> man, not pink. doesn't do me. The boat was sprayed pink everything we set off um we were doing really well we're 39 days we're into making the record from newfoundland to the sillies where bishop's rock where it would end we're underneath southern islands so we think we're nearly there uh we had a weather forecast chappy from america and he was brilliant and he was telling us the weather giving us all of it but about a week before this happened He said, there's a hurricane coming up, but don't worry, it's not going to affect you guys. The next time we spoke to him, the hurricane's coming up, you'll be okay. The hurricane's coming up, you may get a bit of rough water. Hurricane's coming, it's going to get bouncy chaps. And then the next one was, I think you want to batten down, the hurricane's going to hit you. It's coming for you. So we prepared the boat, we got myself and Mark in the bow. John and Jonathan in the stern. We all had our immersion suits on. We chucked the line out the back with floats just in case anybody got knocked off. Not that we were going to go outside, but we'd have a line to grab all the pull ourselves in. We got the grab bag sorted, positioned in its place. We called the Coast Guard um, and said, look, this is our Latin long. We're on the sea anchor. Hurricane's hitting us. They went, no problem. You've told us where you are. We'll put it out the ship in blah, blah, blah. Um, and three o'clock in the morning, Mark said, should we swap places? Cause him and I were in a little tight place as we're doing it. The boat rolled and I, are we upside down? 
He says, I think so. We'd planned to be upside down. No, we didn't plan, but we knew what to do if we were upside down. So we opened the hatch and the water just gushed in. Um, pitch black, three o'clock on a Sunday morning. Sunday, hurricane. See, she doesn't like me. Mike went out. I couldn't see which way he went. I went out, went to the right. The drill was we'd go to the dagger boards and we'd write the boat. We'd practice this. It worked every time. So I get to the dagger board and I look and it's like, I thought we had a straight boat. Why have we got an L-shaped boat? Oh, no. And it was literally in half held together with the safety line that went back and forth of the boat. So it was then start shouting, Mark, where are you? He's on the other side. So we had to find John and Jonathan. Uh, heard, Jonathan heard Jonathan and he disappeared. Found him, went, so I had to dive down a little bit, grab him, pull him up. And it's amazing when you're in that situation, you're really calm. So you don't scream and shout at him. Go, How come you went down, Jonathan? Yeah. I done done me zip because it was too hot. I went, you're a bit of a plonker. He's a Tide reporter. Very <laughs> posh. He was the fashion guru on the ship. I'm ex-squaddy, scruffy. So there was a lot of banter. He was going to educate me. So got his zip done up. Got him round to Mike. Said, Mike, hold on to him. We've got to find John. Eventually found John. John had a bang on his head, so he was semi-concussed. But there. Got him. And I said, right, we've got to get the life raft. So I suppose that's my job. So went back. Had to dive down. Get back into the, uh, the hatch cabin that we were in. Unscrew the screws, which was easy enough done. Get the life raft which wanted to float, try and hold it down, get it out, bring it up, give that to Mike. Mike, you can deal with this site. I'll go back, dive back down, got the grab bag, came back up. Life raft was up. We got Jonathan in it. We'd lost John. They're going, get in. I said, I can't get in because the last thing John's wife said was, don't come back without him. And I thought, if I don't find him, she's going to shout at me. So swam around a little bit, and he was holding on to the EPIRB. Um, got him, got him in the life raft, and you have to imagine a life raft with four guys in it. One hypothermic going down, one semi-cast and one in shock. <laughs> I'm just laughing, thinking, oh, poo. Um, we got on the radio, told the Coast Guard what were happening. They sent out uh, Nimrod, and everything would be controlled by the Nimrod. They told shipping, all this. Meanwhile, Jonathan's going down, he's got to get something on his head, and I, I needed to go to the toilet. So I got the bailer, and I'm doing the business, and I'm looking at Jonathan, I'm looking at the bailer, looking at the side of the hat uh, where we chuck the business out. Revenge is sweet, isn't it? All the black <laughs> I took off him about my dress and all this, I thought, I'm going to have fun. So emptied the bailer out and went, Jonathan, I've got just the thing for your head, mate. It'll keep <laughs> Put it on his head. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> How did he take to that when he learned? Yes. Yeah. We sat on a family show. Uh, oh, that's hilarious. We then got a call. The Nimrod was above. Would we put a flare out? So that was my job because I was the only one sort of able to stand up. So I'm stood outside with a shamuli and I hear this voice, don't do it over the raft. Shut up. Land it, wait in the pilots going now, now, now. And I hit the flare. Uh, we went to see him afterwards to thank him. And he said the flare went straight up in front of his nose. So we knew exactly where we were. Holy cow. I'm a good shot. Yeah, I guess so. In fact, I couldn't see anything. I was just going by sound. Uh, then they got the, told us there was a super tanker coming. And the funny part of it all was we were sponsored by Pink Lady Apples. And I always say to people when they're telling me things, I said, what do you think? I'm coming a banana boat. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a banana boat that was rescuing us. <laughs> so I can't use that saying now. That's funny. So they got the, the rope across with the old gun. Tied off to the life raft, pulled the life raft into the super tanker. Uh, at the gauge, the waves, we got the worst guy off, which was Jonathan. I got him off first. 
excuse me, got John off second, got Mark off third. All I had to do was get off, and that was it. Left the life. Just as I went to make the jump, the wave disappeared. The life raft fell down. I hit the side of the tanker, got dragged along, holding with one hand. I just burst out laughing. I thought, I've been in this situation before when I was serving. Um, managed to get myself up on the top. And the guy said, are you okay? I said, yeah. He said, all we heard was laughing. I said, it's a long story. You don't want to know. (laughs) Man, that is a crazy story. Oh, it gets even better. They got us all changed. And John and Jonathan got the best kit. Mark and I got the worst kit. So we're still the scruffiest pair on the boat. Put us in a a cabin. They said, we got 400 DVDs. What do you want to watch? I said, perfect story. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) That would make sense. (laughs) So it was. Uh, That's great. Well, you 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 almost glossed over it. Um, you dove down a couple times to your your sunken boat, and you re, you retrieved uh, emergency supplies and the raft and the immersion suit for your for your teammate. Um, that's a that's a pretty important part of that story, and you received commendations for that, right? Yeah, we all had our immersion suits on. We were prepared. What he done is he unzipped his. So the water came in. So all I had to do was get the life raft and the grab bag. Uh, when we landed in Ireland, it was quite funny because we had, you know, what the media paparazzis are like, hundreds of them. So they're there and we walked down. So I walk at the back and they walked down. And when nobody was looking, I stuck in behind the, the reporters. So there's John, Jonathan and Mark in front and they're all interviewing them. And one of the uh, reporters suddenly went, I thought there were four of you. And then they all start looking, and I'm behind them, just staying out of the way, laughing. <laughs> You're a bit of comedian out there. That's probably good. Mm. I mean, to, to keep your mental sanity out there, you kind of have to have fun with this kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen um, Master and Commander. A uh, long time ago. Yeah. Too far to remember. Do you remember the part where the guy picks a cannonball up and jumps over the side? He's the Jonah. No, I don't. Oh, well, he does and he dies. And the joke <laughs> was on the boat that if you misbehave, you do the battery walk because we had a spare battery. And uh, that's where that came from, that you grab <laughs> the battery and you'd be chucked over the side. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have uh, you have a lot more stories, and I want to dip into a, a few of them. But before we do that, let's take some time and talk about what you do. Uh, I want to know about Colonel Coaching and about your your books that that you have. Colonel Coaching is was set up about a year ago um, after my last challenge. Come back and thought I've been doing the security a long time. I've had enough of being uh, blown up, shot up, and all the rest of it. It's time to come back to my roots, which is Cornwall. And I will do what my passion is, is the outdoors. So we do high-end kayaking. It's one-to-one, which you pay for. I just found a loophole with mums and babies. I mean, four-year-olds and five-year-olds that they want to go on the water together. I won't take kids on their own. I just don't do that. Uh, I believe it's the interaction between the parents and the kids is what counts. So we've done quite a few of them now, mums and kids on the water, and it's hysterical. I don't get on the kayak with them. They're on the double. I get my own kayak alongside because then they can't go, oh, Peter, do the paddling. No, you're doing it, and you're interacting. And what I teach them is water safety, especially with the little folk. I teach them how the wind affects the kayak. What is a tide? How does the tide work? It comes in, it goes out, it ebbs, it floods what it does all the safety aspects all the water parts because we we're having problems here with people can buy a sit-on from a shop chuck it on the water they have no buoyancy aid no nothing and they go out uh we have one die last week we have them getting rescued all the time and they don't understand wind tides and safety so this is all part of it with parents and kids Start him at a young age. Take groups. I will not take more than four. I believe in if you're paying your money, you've got to have the quality of teachings. Four people you can teach and have a laugh with. Um, so we do that. I also do hill walking and in the hills, but I don't use technology. 
because what if it breaks? So I'm old-fashioned mapping compass, which people actually quite like because they want to get away with the, the technology thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are running non-technical weekends where you come, we'll walk, you're not even allowed a mobile phone. The only mobile phone is a safety phone, which is locked away. And it's about interacting. I did, I was asked to take a, a band for a weekend activity. So we, we paddled down, they never paddled. So we had a quick lesson. We camped and we did some bushcraft. So I showed them how to light a fire without matches and lighters which they thoroughly enjoyed. They didn't realize there were so many ways to do it. <laughs> and we sat around a campfire and they all talked. We all had stories. We all had everything. And they really, that of the whole weekend is what they enjoyed was the campfire. Um, it's the interaction, being able, a lot of people, you see them now, you go out, it's got to be the same in the States. You have a, a loving couple go out and they don't even look at each other's eyes now. They're too busy looking at mobile phones, iPads, or this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're losing the art of communication by voice. Um, so we, we Colonel Colchian, want to bring that back. So that's what we do. We have non-technical weekends. Uh, bushcraft, we teach basic bushcraft. And that's a good one. I've just found out that I can't teach in schools because I don't have a tick in a box to say that I've attended a bushcraft school and know how to do it. The fact I did it for three years in Europe training special forces and I did it 15 years in special forces don't count. I've got to have a tick in a box. Yeah. With all your credentials, you don't, uh, you don't have what it takes is no, what they're saying. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you have to go be taught. I've got to go and be taught by somebody that's been nowhere, where done nothing and hasn't seen anything. Wow. Um, so that's Colonel Colchin. Um, we're looking at progressing. We even do night paddles, which I really enjoy doing. Um, people can't believe you can paddle at night with no lights and all this and use your other senses. You're listening more. Uh, so it's teaching them all the skills. Uh, we do trips. So we do camping from kayaks. Again, small numbers. And it's all the things I've learned the hard way we pass on to these people. So and we do, I do after dinner speaking. I did a five minute presentation this week and I had people crying with laughter. So I must be quite good at it. No, I, I think that comes across absolutely. I bet you make a fantastic speaker. I've had fun. I've spoken in, in America by the Great Lakes and in Canada, Israel. Um, so I'd like to get more into that now, do the after dinner circuit or the, the conferences or the symposiums. So that's what we're about, Colonel Coaching. Very cool. And people can find you at kernocoaching.com. That's K-E-R-N-O-W coaching.com. Do you know what Colonel stands for? I don't know what it stands for. I know it's the name of the town. No, no. It's Gaelic for Cornwall. Oh, really? Yeah, that's our Gaelic name for where I live. So now they, so does Cornwall go by both names then? Yes. Because you can find Kerno on the map. Yeah. Okay. Cornwall is what everybody everybody loves coming to Cornwall. And did you know you've got Cornish communities in America? No. Yes. Because I always say, and it was an American that did it, so I had to eat humble pie. I said, you never, you see American English, American Scottish, American Irish, American English, American everybody, but you never see an American Cornish one. So this guy went on the net and said, there's an American community. There's one up in the north and one on the east coast. We used to be famous for tin mining. And when they closed the tin mines, the Cornishmen went and they set up a community in Canada, a couple in America, Australia, and New Zealand. And they still fly the flag and eat the oggies, which is awesome. Oh, very cool. So, yeah. Well, maybe in my uh, trips, I'll have to make sure I swing by one of these and, yeah. and meet your, your fellow Cornwallians. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we move on, I want to know about your books. You have uh, one book that's out, uh, Kayaking Across the Atlantic, and then you have another one that uh, you're working on getting out. Tell us a little bit about those. Yep. Uh, when I did the Atlantic, um, I had a very bad PR company um, that shafted me, but that's life. Um, and they said, there's no book in this. I went, of course, there's a book in it. So I wrote the book, Kayak the Atlantic, which is 
Touchwood has been a good success and I've had a lot of good feedback on it. I then circumnavigated Newfoundland and I've written a book called Seven Charts and a Roadmap. I have a passion. If you're on the sea, you use charts. If you're on the land, you use roadmaps. You know, it's a map for everything. And don't like using roadmaps on the sea because it doesn't tell you overflows. It, you know the score. On the southwest corner of Newfoundland, I couldn't find a chart. So I had to use a roadmap. But in really? the country, I had seven charts, hence the title, Seven Charts and a Roadmap. <laughs> and it's been trying to get it. It's written. It's just trying to get it published, which we're having a bit of problem over here. Uh, but it get there. And another book I'm working on is my latest expedition, which was last year. I set the record along with another person. We did 29 countries throughout Europe uh, in 21 days. There's 26 countries, but we had to go through three non-EU countries to do the 26 EU ones. And we did it in 21 days on motorbikes. Having only just passed my motorbike test, so I thought it would be a good challenge. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you... Uh... You didn't just ride 29 countries in 21 days. You did this for a reason. Yep. It wasn't just for fun. No, no. Everything I do, I do for reasons, for charity. Usually I I do it for the little folk charities, the kiddie charities, because I've had a good life. And a lot of these kiddies don't get that. You know, they're hospices and all that. They have one-way tickets. So I like to raise money for them and their awareness. On this occasion, being ex-service one, over here, I know I'm going to get into trouble for this. We don't look after our troops like you look after your troops there. Um, so we did it for get the soldiers off the streets because we have a lot of soldiers living on the streets, which shouldn't be. We have them living in cars. Uh, we won't get politics. Who else is living in the houses? But they're not English. And the other one was Blesma, which is the, the limbless soldiers. And to give you an idea of what it's like here, we worked with a guy got blown up in Iraq, lost his leg below the knee, and he applied for a disability sticker in your car because if you've got a disabled sticker, you can park your car anywhere. Please sure. touch you. And they wrote back and said, you're not disabled. Wow, really? Yeah. And yet in this country, if you're overweight, you're now classed as disabled because of the EU. So if you're over a certain weight, you're disabled for being fat, fat. But you can't get get uh, have war wounds and come back and be considered disabled and get the the same treatment. No, he showed us the paper and we're the three of us were like, "You've lost your leg." Apparently, when he's got his prosthetic on, he can walk normal. Oh well, makes complete sense, right? Yeah. So they they declined him it. So that's it. so the other one was Blesmo. It's about soldiers uh, who have lost limbs so we raised awareness of both them which was well it's admirable that you're taking your your journeys and adventures and turning them into something good like that that's that's awesome yeah which is great i can do it um so why not give people that are unable to do it some pleasure of some sort yeah absolutely well good for you so back to your uh, your book and your your kernel coaching real quick. Uh, one of the things we like to do is offer discounts uh, to our listeners, and we have listeners all around the world. So I'm hoping that they can uh, they can come visit you at kernelcoaching.com and peterbrayadventurer.com. Uh, is there any kind of discount or offer you'd like to offer to uh, to people that contact you? Yeah, if they've come through your system, I'm all up for giving them a good discount because. You know, they've taken the time to listen to you and everything you do, which is fantastic. I've seen some of the people on your site and it's like, wow, I'm going to join them. So, yeah, they'll get a good discount. And if they get in touch, we can give them the first chapter of Seven Charts and Roadmap. Excellent. So they get in touch with you. Just mention that they heard about you on the Adventure Sports Podcast and you'll, you'll set them up with that. Yeah, and get them to mention that your name and not just they've been on it so they can't cheat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Make sure they mention the host Travis Parsons. Yes. Fair enough. Yeah. That's that's the key right there. That's it. Okay. That's now, one of your most fascinating journeys that you you set out on, um, at least in my opinion, is the one down around South Georgia. <laughs> um, I think you were inspired by Ernest Shackleton and, and his yeah uh, uh, his team 
they went down there. The boat boat got uh, frozen, locked in the the ice, and it really set them out on their their real adventure of trying to live uh, live and get by, and then finally, um, you know, making their way back to uh, to get help. And it's, I mean, the the trials that they went through down in that area. I mean, those oceans are insane. I mean, they're they're frigid, they're rough. I mean, it's some of the 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 craziest ocean that we have on this planet. Yet you somehow, for some reason, were inspired to go down there and retrace the route in a kayak. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? So tell us about that. I'm I'm really really fascinated with yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, they were stuck on Elephant Island, and they got in their little lifeboat and sailed it to South Georgia, hit the South Coast, and then they climbed over the mountains to get to the Norwegian whaling fleet station and got rescued. South Georgia had never been kayaked around. It had been attempted on many a times, and they'd all failed. Um, you know the story of Amundsen and Scott? No. What? What do they teach you in school over there? <laughs> We're too busy working on our electronic devices. Did you not know? Oh, <laughs> about a hundred odd years ago, Scott wanted to go to the South Pole. Amazon was a Norwegian and he wanted to go, but Scott was very public about what he was doing. And Amazon sort of didn't tell anybody and went down there and he actually succeeded. And Scott ended the way he ended. Um, South Georgia was a bit like that for me with the Kiwis. And if they're listening to this, they're going to be really upset. They attempted it uh, the first year and failed. They went back. Now, because it's under British jurisdiction, you have to fill in heaps and heaps of paper bo- paperwork and you've got to have a boat. And it's funny they tell you the type of boat you've got to have. So it's sort of like a bit of in-house trading. Scratch my back and I'll let you have a boat like. So we did it. Ours was the Pelagic. Pl- pl- and an ex-girlfriend of mine was living in New Zealand at the time, and we were going for the November. The Kiwi team was going for the January, which was actually the best weather conditions. And it was like, if that's the only time we can go, we go. So anyway, we're all getting ready, and I publicize everything I do because that's how you get your, your sponsorship and your, your monies. Of course. And she'd been to a chat and phoned me up and said, the Kiwis are leaving. I said, what do you mean leaving? She said, they're setting off now. So, well, they can't. They've booked in for January. Anyway, they went there and give them their due. They were the first ones to kayak around South Georgia. Um, they did it in 18 odd days. We passed each other on the ocean. They were coming back as we were going down. And we arrived down there. And the lady in charge of the Antarctic survey station there was just happens to be a Kiwi. And she was like, my boys have done it. What are you guys doing? And I went, oh, we've come this far. We're just going to enjoy life now. We're going to make the film and paddle around. And, you know, this cost us a lot of money to come here. And uh, cut a long story short, 13 days later when we came in, she was very annoyed that we'd taken five days, eight hours off the record. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and they've never forgiven us. They call us cheats and we did this, we did that. We got round. Yeah, um, yeah. So we hold the fastest record for South Georgia. That is great. Which is now being paddled quite a lot, so it's good. Well, it's no small feat. You know, I was uh, I've been watching the the. There's a Netflix documentary on uh, on a team that that retraced Shackleton's roots, um, at least from Elephant Island, mm-hmm. in the same mock-up of the of their lifeboat. You know what they go through out there in the sea, and that little boat is—I think it's twenty-two feet. Yeah, um, is is amazing. But then I'm, you know, I'm thinking about you out there on the kayak, you know, and you know, it, it is tiny little boat in out there, at least by yourself in your in your own craft. Um, it's it's got to be quite a a feat to to do that. Yeah, and if you read the story of the boat, he had one glimpse of I think it was the stars, and he—that's what you call navigation. Wow, he was phenomenal, and yeah, I'd love to see that. Uh, the documentary was here about a year ago in three parts, and then they walked over the mountains, which people today have trouble walking over. It's, right, and it's it's the power of the mind. Um, I I swam from Alcatraz, and I remember people saying, "You can't swim from Alcatraz, can't they?" Never escaped. 
and they did reenactments of all these fantastic, and they said, it can't be done, it can't be done. And I said, the thing about a reenactment, it's bluff. And they, what do you mean it's bluff? I said, you can reenact, you can put the same clothes on, you can have the same conditions, you can have the same everything. The one thing you cannot have is that mindset. Right. You haven't got it. They got that mindset. And you, you're not going to uh, reproduce that. No, there's a completely different drive there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's how people succeed is, is the mindsets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, um, you have done a ton of things in your life. And I'm thinking there, I mean, you've already had me laughing. So I'm, there's a few funny stories in there already. But what about one big funny story that you can share with us? World War II ended. And we had airplanes, and you, you often hear of somebody, what was your position in the airplane? I was the tail gunner. We were there, we were doing this. And you don't really hear about tail gunners anymore because planes have changed and technology's moved on. Unless, of course, you go to Africa and you have a microlight, which um, I got bored going to the bar every night and saw a microlight. So I went along to a guy who landed, said, how do I learn to fly one of these? He said, I'm the instructor. I said, I'm the student. <laughs> easy as that. It's easy as that. And he went, you okay? So he taught us to fly. I got my PPL, personal pilot's license. During the training, I my job was security on um, Port Nolliff Harbor. And he phoned up. He said, Pete, we've got to go jackal hunting tomorrow. Can you come? I said, what time? He said, five in the morning. I said, I'll be there. So I flew the microlight to the farm. And all through my training, I never landed on tarmac. It was all dirt tracks, dirt roads, and all this. So I was quite good at landing at the farm. And I got out. He said, what we're going to do is swap seats. I want you to sit in the back with a shotgun. Just don't hit the cables. <laughs> we had four by fours and motorbikes that would bring the jackals towards us. And our job was to fly just above the land. And my job was to shoot the jackals. So I was, a, I love telling the story is I was a microlite tail gunner. <laughs> it might be the only one in the world. <laughs> I think I am. I've had people here in stitches when, cause they fly microlites here. You know, you've got to observe the laws here and it's got to be the height. You've got to have this, that, that, that. And you suddenly say, ah, oh, yeah, but I was a tail gunner. And I'm like, what? That trumps all, right? Yeah, yeah. That's great. We had a microlight pilot on the on the show uh, a few weeks back. And, uh, he would get a kick out of that for sure. Yeah, the good crafts. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Pete, I swear to you, if I ever make my my way over to Cornwall, I will. Uh, I will. I would love to take you out for a beer and uh, get the rest of your stories because I this podcast could go on forever. I think you have some uh, some awesome things to share, and we've only dipped into the. The, the bit of the surface of them. So one of these days we need to uh, regroup and, and go over the rest of the stories. That would be great. Well, uh, if we still got time, I still have two plans. Okay. Um, one of the plans is to re-roll the Atlantic and succeed. But I was thinking, how do you make ruining Atlantic's getting boring now? A lot of people are doing it. So how do I make it interesting? I have a motorbike and we've covered that in America. You have Cornish communities. So the plan is two nations, one flag, because we have our own flag in Cornwall, which is black with a white cross. It's a flag of St. Perrins. And the communities in America, I hear, fly the Cornish flag on the 5th of March, which is St. Perrins Day. So the plan is to go to the, the communities, get a letter. I think they're going to ask to come back to the mother country. Ride a motorbike from there to New York. Row the rowing boat from New York to the Sillies. Kayak from the Sillies to Falmouth, then the motorbike to the Lord Lieutenant of Cornwall's office and hand him the letter is the plan. Wow. So I could be in the States quite soon, hopefully. Oh, that would be cool. You definitely need to look me up if that happens. Well, speaking of the States, I know one of your other things that you still want to do is the Bering Strait. Yes, that was all ready to go um, last year. And... Uh, I'm really upset with the Russians because they didn't inform me of their plan to go and see the Ukraine. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't let you in on that no, first, right? I'm really disappointed. <laughs> you know, they could have at least said, Pete, could you put it back? Or, you know, this is what we plan to do. And I could have said, could you wait till I've done the crossing? 
Yeah, a simple email exchange would have well, would have solved the technology, everything. Technology, use it. <laughs> All these lines, and of course, America got involved as well, along with uh, Europe. So I was advised because of my history to wait until it all settles down. So the Bering Straits is basically ready to go. It's just waiting for a, a good time. Um, but I wanted to do something, so I ended up doing the motorbike ride around Europe. So yeah, that's great. Still love to well, do it. I really hope you get to do those uh, the next two trips that you're planning. And if you do, I would like to have you back on the show to, to talk about them for sure. Would love to. Thank you. Awesome. All right, Pete, thanks so much for giving me your time. It's uh, It's been a fantastic uh, hour of storytelling. And like I said, I would love to hear the, the rest of them. So let's make sure that happens. We're doing. Thank you for allowing me to be a guest. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. You take care. You too, Jervis. Goodbye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.